reading is from Matthew 7, verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you. I do hope you are having your copy of Scripture and that you can join me in Matthew chapter 7. Uh, just one verse today. We're moving through the Gospel of Matthew, and uh, we've been focusing our time on the Sermon on the Mount. And we come today to this particular passage, which we want to spend just a few moments thinking about, which is most of us like to call this, or maybe have heard this called the Golden Rule, uh, verse 12. Just read it one more time. I'd like for you to have it memorized by the time you go home. I think this verse some of us have in our heads, and yet it's easy enough and simple enough to settle into our, our minds. But whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Very simple verse, but one that we need to absorb into our souls. And so would you join me in prayer? Father, we ask that your will would be done in our lives this morning just as it is in heaven, uh, completely unhindered and with glad submission. Let your work be done in our souls. And we praise you by your spirit that you are continually at work among us. And we would invite you now to work within us. And Lord, you do that secret work, which only you can do. We want with all of our hearts to be able to say, let your will be done within us. So please remove from us any of that stubborn selfishness that yet remains and let us see the goodness that you have planned for us in such a way that that is more appealing to us than anything else on this world. Let us see your goodness, you, even yourself as you have given manifestation to your character through your son Jesus. We would ask that you would let us behold your glory, Lord Jesus, this morning as we think about your words. And we're here to listen to your words, and we would ask that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see all that you would want us to see this morning. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Uh, the Golden Rule, probably popularly known uh, to most of you here, but I, I wonder how many of you know why it's called the Golden Rule. That was uh, curious to me. I, I didn't actually know this, but in doing a little homework, I discovered that the Roman emperor... Alexander Servus, Severus, I got the emphasis on the wrong syllable there. Um, Alexander Servus uh, reigned from 222 to 235 AD, uh, took this to heart, and it became a kind of motto for his reign. He was not a Christian, but he was able to affirm some Christian doctrine. And so this became embraced by him, and he posted it on public buildings, and in his own palace, it was inscribed in gold. And so for uh, the, the most of the people who were able to be in and around the palace, this became known as the golden rule, because this is what he, he strove to live by. And so we have a Roman emperor to thank for this title, which we call um, the golden rule. And yet, uh, we are called to, uh, to think about this clearly, and we, you see the first word in this verse. Verse 12 begins with a so, uh, which is maybe some of your translations, it might be a therefore or a then. Um, it can be translated in any of those ways, but what this tells us is that Jesus is beginning here, this sentence begins with a conclusion, because the therefore is a marker of result, which 
uh, implies a conclusion in a process of reasoning. So Jesus has, he's concluding something. So we're beginning this verse, we're jumping in to listen to the words of Jesus, but he's bringing to conclusion something that he's already started. Uh, this word tells us that. So it's helpful to know what, what the word is there, uh, therefore or so, what it means. I don't know if you grew up, I grew up listening to uh, pastors who would often say, if you see a therefore in the text, of course you need to ask, what is the therefore therefore? And so what, what is Jesus doing? What is he concluding? Because he's bringing to a conclusion some process of reasoning in his mind and in the argument of this Sermon on the Mount. And the question is, is what is he bringing to a conclusion? And there's basically two options. He's either concluding the previous paragraph that he just started. If you remember last week, we talked about judgment and, and discernment and making what, what kind of judgments are being prohibited, what are not. So is he bringing to a conclusion this process and thinking about judgment? Or the other option is he's actually the beginning, the conclusion of the entire Sermon on the Mount. And so here we are. You, if you look at your copy of Scripture, you'll see we're getting close. Uh, chapter 7 ends uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And so is that what Jesus is doing? So l- let's think about it either way. If he's first bringing to conclusion the previous immediate context in, in context of judgment, then he's offering a one-sentence summary on, on a principle that would apply to Christians who are called to make judgments. And, and we saw last week, the, the command, judge not, so that you be not judged, does not remove us from the obligation of making all judgments. What is being prohibited is making judgments that we refuse to apply to ourselves. And so as you, as you follow through chapter 7, you'll remember that we're called to make judgments Um, We're called to make discernments. We see that in verse 5 very clearly and in verse 6. So judgments are not completely removed. We're simply, Jesus is providing us a framework for how to judge rightly and how to make good judgments that are accurate and true, not improper ones, especially that we refuse to give to ourselves. And so if Jesus is bringing this portion to a conclusion... We'll see, he started that thinking about judgment, and then we get into this notion of prayer. And, and what we argued for there, as we were thinking about prayer, is you can't make right, good judgments without prayer. We make them on our own, we're wrong. We have this tendency to make judgments very quickly and easily, but without prayer, without seeking discernment from God, we're going to go wrong. And so Jesus talks about prayer within the context of judgment because I think what he is saying is don't ever make judgments without first praying about it. And, and when you need the wisdom to make right and proper judgments, that comes through persistent prayer. So he has then called us to a place of persistent prayer. And having just sung about the goodness of God, you remember that we looked back at Luke's account when Jesus on another instance said these very same words. And he said that the best thing you could pray for, the highest good that the Father could give you is His Holy Spirit. He says, if you who are evil, you parents who are evil, not a good gift, give good gifts to your kids, how much more will your heavenly Father give His Spirit to those who ask Him? That's the greatest gift that we can receive is the Spirit of God Himself. That is what every human being needs most. That is what we lost 
when we were cut off from him in the Garden of Eden. And so we need to be reunited to our Father. That happens through the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That is our desperate need. And so Jesus is saying here, if that's what he's concluding, then he's saying, all right, we've talked about judgment. You know it doesn't happen except through prayer. And so one sentence summary, in conclusion, whatever you want others to do to you, verse 12, Whatever you wish others would do to you, then that you do to them. This is all of the law and the prophets. So if, if that's what Jesus is saying, then he's providing a summary to conclude the notion of judgment. Meaning, you need to keep this in your mind when you're making judgments. So we, had, we have one verse today. Because I think this is crucial for us to get into our heads. We probably have all heard this. How many of you have heard this throughout your life? What do, you, what, what do you want done to you? Do it to others. Right? We, we've all probably heard it. But I'm wondering how deeply has it sunk in? How deeply has it rested within us as, as a guiding principle? And so this is all we're thinking of. So that's the first option. Is he concluding this paragraph? Or is he concluding, beginning the conclusion of the entire Sermon on the Mount? And there's a clue that that might be what he's doing. And it's this phrase of the law and the prophets. That's a repeated phrase. We heard it back in chapter 5, verse 17. If you remember that verse, we'll go back there. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So some people think Jesus introduced that topic in the beginning of chapter 5. And then chapter 5 is essentially uh, Jesus' correction of biblical teaching. His, his exposition of a right teaching in the Bible, that's chapter 5, and then we get into chapter 6 and 7, and then he's applying that teaching. And so here, if he's concluding what he has begun, then he's summarizing all of the law and the prophets. He's providing a one-sentence summary for the entire Old Testament, is essentially what he's doing. So the question is, which is he doing? Is he just concluding this one section, or is he beginning the conclusion of the entire Old Testament? and providing a, a simple summary of, of all of the Old Testament. And the Apostle Paul essentially agreed with this summary. Romans 13, 9. This might come to the mind of some of you. Uh, Paul talks about all of the Old Testament commandments, and he says this. They're all summed up in this word. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And so what do you think? Right, this is where we, I, I love it when I hear people saying, I'm, I'm reading through the Bible in a year. I love that. I, I personally do it about every year also. But we sometimes, when you're reading through the Bible, you have to stop and think. We have to stop and pause and consider what are we seeing. And this is one of those moments where this word, so or therefore, causes us to stop and think, what is Jesus concluding? And honestly, it could be either, it could be both. I think you could make an argument either way. I think probably it's a little bit of both. Because certainly it is a wise principle when you're called to make judgments and discernments to think whatever you want done to you, let that be the guide for what you do to others. That, that's certainly wise. But it is also certainly true that that is a summary of the entire heart and soul of the Old Testament. And Paul agrees, right? That this is another way of saying, if you love your neighbor, if you love the people in your life and close to you, you're going to treat them well. You're going to. 
And that's the, the heart and soul of the entire Old Testament. So I think it's probably a little bit of both of what Jesus is doing. But again, if this is what he's saying, he is giving you a one-sentence summary of the entire thrust of the law. And if you ever want to know what's the meaning of the Old Testament, what's the meaning of the Bible, what does God want you to know? Because we're, we struggle with retaining information, don't we? Nobody. I, you know, we had a mission partner on the stage up here last week that I've known for 15 years or so, and I couldn't remember his name when we had a chance to pray for him. Right? We, we, we lose information. Of course, 30 seconds later, I could recall the name, but I was beyond needing to use it. And yet, we have one, one simple sentence here. What you wish that others would do to you, you do that to them. This is all of the law and the prophets. And, and so... We have to pause and ponder that because if that's true, that's an incredible guide for us to think about in our own lives. And and I wonder how many of us have embraced this completely as a guiding principle of our lives, right? How many of us, we have this in our minds, but how many of you take this, if you're married, how many of you take this and let, is this a guiding principle in your marriage? Is this a guiding principle at home? Moms and dads, when you're dealing with your kids, is, is that in your mind? Is that helping to frame our actions? Is this helping to frame our words? Uh, kids, is this helping to frame your response to your parents? How many of us let this frame how we react with our coworkers? And, and imagine with me for just a second, a miracle. I discovered as I was going through this, in 1913, there was an Acme uh, rod factory. And I grew up watching co- the, you know, the Coyote and the Roadrunner Hour. How many of you ever remember Wiley Coyote? Right? Everything in that show was the Acme so-and-so company. And I thought it was like a fake company. I just made up. But it's actually a company called the Acme Rod Company who posted this placard over the entrance to the employee's uh, entrance of the building. This is the rule that governs this factory. And what does it say? Say it with me. Therefore, whatsoever ye would that men should do unto you, do ye even so unto them. Could you imagine going to work and finding that above the entrance of your door? That's incredible. Teachers, could we even put that in the classroom? Or would you get kicked out for just doing that. That was on a company in a factory in 1913. So how many of us have, have let it, this principle govern our lives? I, I just wonder. It, it's an incredible verse. If, if this is what Jesus is doing, summarizing all of the Old Testament, I think we had to let this sink in, don't you? Because this, the essence of this command is not unique to Jesus in some form and almost entirely in the negative form, a statement like this has been embraced by almost every culture throughout history in some way or shape. I'll give you a couple of examples. In a negative form, always we find this. For example, dating back to 626 BC, uh, Thales of Miletus said this, avoid doing what you would blame others for doing. Avoid doing what you would blame others for doing. Notice it's in, in the negative. 
626 BC, and then Confucius in 551 said this, what you do not wish for yourself, do not do to others. Again, in the negative form. And going back even into rabbinic Judaism, uh, dating back to 110 BC, Rabbi Hillel said this, what is hateful to you, do not do to another. So all of these we could go through culture after culture. there's There's a similar statement in a negative form in Islam. There's one in Buddhism. Every major world is a religion or culture has a kind of guiding principle like this, always in the negative form. So the essence of this is not unique to Jesus, but what is unique is he's the only person to have shaped it in a positive way. Meaning, Take what you want done to you and then let that be the guide for how you treat others. He's the only person who stated it positively. Everyone else framed it negatively in the don't do this. What you don't want done to you, refrain from doing to other people. But Jesus here extends a call to his followers to active, loving service and action. And think about this. What are the implications for Husbands, wives, mothers, fathers, how does this get played out in our homes? Because this is really easy to, to get a hold of, right? We can teach this to our kids, can't we? Little, little people can understand this. For example, you have a, a little son who just smacked baby sister. You can, the three-year-old, you can, you can look at three-year-old little boy and say, now son, What do you prefer daddy to do to you? Do you want me to hug you or do you prefer that I smack you? I I think the three-year-old's gonna go for hug. And then what's your response? Okay, then you hug baby sister. Don't smack baby sister, right? As children, we can get this principle and it's easy for us to embrace because who's the standard? The metric, Jesus says, look at your own preferences. What do you like? What do you prefer? What do you want done to you? Then think about and do that in accordance with those who are around you. What's beautiful about this is this can be very helpful in guiding your actions in ways that the Bible never specifically addresses. And and I want us to think about a few of these. Right? If, if you like being spoken to with kind words, then what does this say to us? If that's true, then we also should speak to others in kind words. Or if you like co-workers dealing politely with you and patiently with you, then you need to deal with co-workers politely and patiently. If you like it when a coworker occasionally invites you to lunch and pays for it, then you should occasionally invite a coworker to lunch and pay for it. Or if you like supper on the table when you get home, then occasionally you should plan in advance so that you can do the same for your spouse when he or she comes home and supper can be there. Right? This can be applied in so many ways. For example, does anybody need babysitting? I know you do. We get requests all the time. You know anybody that's looking for babysitting? By the way, I'm not lying. That request comes in often. If you're one of those people who would love to help with babysitting, will you please let me know? Because we get email all the time for 
Seriously, uh, come and tell me after the service. There's a place to serve. If you're a couple, you'd love to go out on a date um, and you need babysitting, then maybe you should offer that sometimes to one another. We can can help each other. Um, What if you say to someone, I have a prayer request. Would you pray for me? If you like that prayer request to be taken seriously and for someone to actually pray for you, then when someone else says the same to you, don't just blow them off and say, okay, when I'll, get, I'll, I'll pray for you when I get around to it. Because we all know 90% of the time, it's in one ear and out the other. So take seriously those requests and stop and pray for one another. If that's how we like to be treated, then let's make sure that we're treating others in the same way. Or if you like the truth being spoken or written only about you, or only the truth being written or spoken about you, then how quickly should you spit off a post? Should we not think and stop and pray and consider, is is this true? Is this right? Is this accurate? We need to be very careful, right? We sometimes treat others with indifference while we ourselves want to be given certain standards. And if you're a person who loves to be forgiven when you mess up, then when others mess up, you should also be a person who is willing to forgive. Jesus calls us to very practically think about the essence of what he's communicating through this particular verse. And he says something astounding at the very end of this. This is the law and the prophets. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. He's summarizing the entire Old Testament. The law stands for the first five books of the Old Testament. Written by Moses, that represents the law. And from Joshua to Malachi, that is is a quick summary. It's Jewish shorthand for the rest of the Old Testament. So the law and then all of the prophets are application of the law, you might think. He's saying, this is the summary of it. A one-sentence summary for the entire Old Testament, which is absolutely incredible. That is an amazing standard. And Jesus says on another occasion, essentially the same thing when he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? Do you remember the answer he gave? Matthew 22, 37 to 40. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. He's essentially saying the same thing. Where does the command to love neighbor come from? It comes from God. So if if we're keeping God in the right place, neighbor is going to be kept in the right place. So this this treatment of one another is is essential to the nature of of the law. And I want you to think with me for one second. If God said to you, let's just take Jesus here, reducing all of the Old Testament to one commandment. If God came to you and said, I have... Jonathan, I have one commandment I want you to do. Just one. Do you think you can do it? And here it is. Whatever you wish that other people would do to you, you do to everybody. How how many of us could keep it? I I think Jonathan would be good for maybe 48 hours. And, And I think... Monday morning or Tuesday morning, it's, you know, it's, it's a holiday and somebody's going to tick him off. And he's not going to think about it. I, I wonder, if, are, do you really think, when, if, if God comes and says to you, honestly, he were to say to you, I just have one thing I want you to do. 
Just one. And this is it. I want how you want to be treated. I want you to do that always to other people. Could you obey it? Because I honestly sit and I think in and of myself, Todd Cravens would fail within 36 hours. Jonathan would make it to 48. I'd, I'd, I'd be done in, in 30. And what landed on me so incredibly heavily is I'm asking, I pray this every week, Lord, what do you want to say to Hope Christian Church through this verse this week? And I come to the conclusion that the Lord is saying, you need my spirit to do all of this. You, you can't do anything pleasing to God without the spirit of Christ. And some of us in this room have been walking with the Lord for a very long time. And, and I think we sometimes get comfortable in realizing, you know what, I'm, I got this. Right? We love to say that, don't we? You got this. Uh, when it comes to being holy in the presence of a holy of God, I want to say to you, you ain't got this. You, you can't do it. And I don't think any of us would succeed, even if he just gave us one commandment, we'd fail within hours. And so, those of you who don't yet know the Lord, how are you going to please a holy God? How are we going to stand in the presence of a holy God with any kind of confidence that we're going to survive it? It is only by the presence of the living God within us which forces us to Jesus because he and he alone purchased the right with his blood to give Jonathan his Holy Spirit and Todd Cravens his Holy Spirit so that we can obey him. And I want you to, to think with me. Here, there's, we have this pull, right, of the flesh and the spirit. We live in that constant tension and the question is, who are we following? Who are we living for? Who's the dominant source in our lives? The Spirit of God. I'm talking to Christians now. Okay, I'm thinking of you who are believers. Are, are we following the Spirit of God? Or are we following our fleshly desires? Because becoming a Christian does not immediately eradicate you of all sinful desires. I wish that were the case. It's not. We still have to fight the fight of being obedient to Christ. And, and part of what Jesus just mentioned at the beginning of chapter 7 is, is we do that in community. He said, hypocrite, don't look at somebody else's faults without first looking at your own. He said, take care of your own faults, then you can help somebody else with theirs. And so here Jesus is saying, this, this commandment, captures the heart of the Old Testament. And yet without the Holy Spirit, you won't live it. And so we need nothing more than to be filled with the Spirit of God. Paul captures this in Romans 8. I just want to read a couple of verses. I'm going to phrase this. I'm going to break it up to divide the, the passage, the portion that points us to being led by the flesh. And by, by that, Paul means all of the sinful tendencies within us. And then compare it to being led by the Spirit. So here's what Paul says. Those who live, this is Romans 8, 5 to 8 or 9. For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. 
For to set the mind on the flesh is death. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's why I said, Jonathan and I, apart from the presence of the Holy Spirit, are completely unable to keep God's law. Completely unable to do it. We, we don't have it within us. This is why Jesus came, is to give us a transformed heart. Jesus came to change us completely from the inside out. And He has perfectly obeyed God the Father, never sinned, That's why he, he being exalted to the right hand of God, has received from the Father the right to pour out His Holy Spirit into your life. We need the Holy Spirit. We, this is in, well, this is freedom weekend, right? We, we celebrate freedom. Um, and yet, we're all enslaved to sin unless Christ sets us free. Freedom from sin only comes from a Savior who never gave in to sin. And Jesus is that only Savior. And so here's, here's the life under the Spirit, Romans 8, 2-4. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Only those who walk according to the Spirit are set free from the dominion of sin. Apart from the presence of the Spirit of God in our lives, we are enslaved to sin completely in the grips of sin. And yet, when Jesus through faith in Christ, we cry out for forgiveness and fullness of His Spirit, and He grants that to us. He pours into the hearts of sinful people His Holy Spirit, who then transforms us from the inside out. And then we can begin to do whatever you want others to do to you, then you do to others. The only way we can live that out is through the Spirit of Jesus living within us. And us being willingly surrendered to His Holy Spirit. That's part of why we come together every week, is to help remind us what we're called to do and to give one another the strength to keep doing it. Right? We, we come together for encouragement, for mutual upbuilding, to say to one another every week, keep living for the Lord. Every one of us, keep following Jesus. Keep surrendering to Him. Jonathan, keep obeying the Lord. Todd, keep obeying the Lord. All of us encouraging one another onward into obedience because those who live according to the Spirit, Romans 8, 5, set their minds on the things of the Spirit, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells within you. Romans 8, 5 and 6. Right? So, Question, if the Spirit of God is within you, are you living in accordance with His Spirit? Are you surrendering to the Spirit of God? Have you surrendered and are you surrendered? Right? I began my surrender to the Lord at age eight, and it continues to this very day because I have not outgrown the need of a Savior. None of us do. 
We don't ever graduate to a point in our spiritual journey where we say, I, I no longer need the Spirit of God. I, I've been walking with the Lord for 50 years. I haven't, but if I were to say that, I don't need the Spirit of God. I'm, I'm good. We don't graduate beyond dependence. And so here in one simple verse, Jesus is calling us, I think, to a humble dependence upon His Spirit every day. Right? We, we decide every day, are we going to submit to the will of God or are we going to follow our own will? That is a choice we have to make every day. So yes, Jesus is my Savior and I continually choose to call Him Savior and Lord because I need Him continually. So have you begun this journey? Maybe some of you in this room listening to my voice, you've never surrendered your life to Jesus. You need to do that. You need to get baptized. You need to begin with God. Maybe that's today. If, if that's the case, don't leave without making sure you know where you stand with the Lord. But for the rest of us who have been walking with the Lord, here's an invitation to a, a, a fresh place of happy dependence upon the Spirit of God to do this verse. That what do you want done to you? Let that be a guide for how you live towards others. And you won't do that without Him. You won't. We will not. We need the Spirit of God in order to be obedient and in order to carry out the promises here. Because if His Spirit, the Spirit of Christ who dwells within His people, who overcame death and overcame every sin and every temptation, if His Spirit is living within you, you can do this. You can overcome the temptation to sin. You can overcome the tendency to be selfish. You can die to yourself with the help of the Holy Spirit. That is possible through Him. With God, all things are possible. With mankind, you can do nothing except hurt one another, cause pain in each other's lives. So the invitation this morning, I think, is for you to see Jesus as the sweetest most supreme, worthy person on the planet, and once again cry out to him afresh in worship, saying, fill me more with your spirit. Make me, Lord Jesus, look more like you. Because one day, every one of us are going to bow at his feet. Every one of us are going to stand before him. And the question will be, what did we do with our lives and, and with the, the, the Christ-like character that Jesus poured within us, were we faithful and happily submissive to him? So what's the state of your soul this morning? Where are you in this journey with the Lord? Are you resisting, continuing to refuse to submit to the Lord? Or are you in a happy place of daily submission? Because that's, that's where we're called to be. So I'm going to invite you in just a moment to worship the Lord Jesus. And we're going to, we're going to sing a song that is sung to him in, in praise of him, in offering him the, the, the praise and honor that is due him because he's, he alone is worthy. He alone can give you the spirit of God. There's no other place for strength than in him and him alone. And so I invite you as we pray, pray with me. Consider where you stand with the Lord. Father, we, we pause at this particular verse and find it absolutely stunning 
in the call to a standard which without you we cannot keep. And yet you call us to keep it. And Lord, I ask you, would you help your people? Would you help us? Would you help me to be obedient? Please don't let this word go in one ear and out the other, Lord. Let us ponder this call to treat other people like we want to be treated. And Lord, without you, we cannot do it. And I, and I ask you, Lord Jesus, would you pour out your spirit upon us in a fresh way so that when we go home today, we're different. When we interact with our spouses, we're different. When we interact with our children, we're different. When we are alone and nobody's watching, Lord, let us be different. And, and it will only come by your merciful grace, Lord Jesus. We bow before you right now, Lord Jesus, and confess, without you, we are absolutely nothing. We are completely unworthy. And yet, Lord, with you, all things are possible. And you are worthy. You are the one true risen Son of God, crucified and resurrected. And we are here today to worship you. And we ask you by your spirit, would you, would you pour your spirit into us and refresh our souls and give us strength to live in a way that this world has never seen and in a way that is completely unique so that when we're asked, what is it about you? We will gladly and quickly say, it is because of my Lord Jesus. May we never be ashamed of your name. And Father, we thank you for the promise that if, if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And Lord Jesus, we need cleansing. We need strength. We need you. We need you more than anything. And so we worship you now with all of our hearts. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.